Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of changemakers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. In this age of anxiety that we're living in, it's arguably more important than ever that all of us learn to meet uncertainty head on. As my next guest, Ama Marston, would say, it's imperative that we learn to deal with challenges not as a passing state, but as a condition of life. Ama is a strategy and leadership consultant who's worked with many Fortune 500 companies and the United Nations. She recently published a book called Type R, Transformative Resilience for Thriving in a Turbulent World that introduces an innovative new framework. Ama argues that while much of the world believes that type A people are our best leaders and innovators, the future actually lies with what she calls type R's, people, businesses, families, and even entire communities that turn challenges into opportunities in times of upheaval, crisis, and change. Let's get to my conversation with Ama Marston. So, Ama Marston, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. We've got lots of things to talk about uh, on the subject of resilience, but I actually want to start in a different place because you wrote a book, Type R, with your mother. Uh, and I remember when you all sent me the book, and one of the things I thought of was, I wonder what that's like uh, working so closely with your mother? Yeah, it is not what I expected I would be doing with my career, especially when I went to international affairs school and, you know, was studying global economics and policy and what have you. But it has been a real honor. And I think it is um, the foundations of what type R really is, given that it came out of a bunch of shakeups in my life where I had left the nonprofit and kind of UN world and was building a new business amidst the financial crisis blowback, um, had a family accident or my father had a family accident and then I myself um, hurt myself. And so through talking to my mom and supporting one another, she was building a business as an entrepreneur in response to the financial crisis and uh, shifting opportunity. You know, our conversations led to us supporting each other as mother-daughter, but also we started to realize there's something here. Not only are we as a family undergoing so much pressure personally, professionally, um, within these big global changes, but, you know, each of our respective fields has something interesting to contribute to this. Um, so my mom is a psychotherapist uh, and... Uh, yes. <laughs> and a, that's another conversation. Yeah, I was going to say... <laughs> the daughter of a psychotherapist. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, so she had the psychotherapy background and had been doing corporate consulting on stress and work-life issues. Um, and around the financial crisis, the businesses that actually needed it the most were hiring the least to bring in experts like her. And so she pivoted and started creating an online platform, one of its first kind, to teach people these tools 
from, you know, of resilience remotely. (laughs) Um, But that came with a lot of pressure being an entrepreneur later in life. So anyway, it just happened naturally that we were having these conversations. There certainly have been some funny moments, particularly early on. I would guess. I'm trying to imagine writing with my my mother. And and, I mean, we're very complimentary. I think it could work. But of course, you know, you're also mother and daughter. So yes, the the personal and the professional all blend together. (laughs) One of my favorite moments. And I don't, I guess it's no longer a family secret, but when we were in proposal writing stage, I had been writing a lot of policy papers and very analytical stuff. And my mom is the author of, I believe, five previous psychology books. So we started writing the proposal. And I think the first time we showed each other something, we were both aghast at each other's work. (laughs) I I was like, Mom, you can't say this. This is so touchy-feely. Nobody I know talks like that. They're not going to, I mean, this is, has to be professional. And she was like, oh my God, this is so dry, dry. and Nobody wonky. Will ever read yes. Exactly. Well, I have to say publishing has gone more in her direction yes. than, than ours. Uh, so let's talk about the book and the, it's type R, Transformative Resilience for Thinking in a Turbulent World. And it's come out a, a while ago now. It was uh, four or five years ago. And I want to talk about transformative resilience. And I'll say, when I read the book, it was very important for how I thought about the definition of resilience, which is one reason I really wanted uh, to have this conversation. But I, I want to start with this notion of type R, because you say, you know, there are alphas and betas. And, you know, my brother's an investment banker, and I'm always saying, you're you're really, you're alpha, you're completely alpha. And his view is, no, no, I'm the alpha in the family. And <laughs> he's actually a beta disguised right. as, as, as an investment banker. But you say there's alpha and there's beta and then there's type R. So just describe what a type R is. So when we were writing this book, which was four or five years ago, um, the book actually launched maybe a year and a half ago. But when we were writing it, we were aware of these kind of definitions of types of people, one being this hard-driven, um, very in-control, sometimes controlling type right. of person, and then the people that were supposedly more laid back, maybe more introverted. And yet we were seeing different kinds of patterns, particularly those who were thriving amidst so much disruption and stress. And when I when we talk about type R's, we use type A and B as a point of reference right. and jumping off point. But type R's actually can be individual people. They can be leaders. Type R's can be teams, whole mm. organizations or communities, in part because we share different mindsets. You know, mindset is individual as it is collective. Right. So type R's are these people, these businesses, these groups of people that turn challenges into opportunity, growth, innovation. And essentially what they're doing is creating transformative resilience. So they're moving away from this notion of bouncing back to a baseline or to the status quo or what was you know known and comfortable before, because often we can't get back to those points um, after something challenging has happened in such a fast-paced world. So it really is about using this shock, this discomfort, or these mounting pressures as a catalyst right. for growth. And that's why we talk about transformative resilience. It's such a, an important concept, because I do think the 
intuitive definition of resilience is yes, you bounce back, right? So you are you go through a crisis and you you go back to that equilibrium. But transformative resilience, you bounce somewhere else, right? So yeah, I think I think it's like a trample that with the events uh, are like a trampoline that can take you somewhere somewhere else, which I do think is is critically important as we face everything from climate changes to just the accelerating speed of our world overall, there probably is no going back or bouncing back exactly to where you were because where you were is changing. So so give us some stories of transformative resilience. Well, um, the easiest place to start is our own story. Well, that's a good place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this You're writing from a, from a place of truth. <laughs> yes. I mean, this book came out of uh, personal and professional experience. And uh, I was laid up for, I think, six months, not able to walk at one point, not able to work. And as somebody who up until then had been in the thick of things, you know, I was advising the United Nations, global leaders, businesses on things like the the predecessors to the Sustainable Development Goals. Right. You know, I was in the thick of it. <laughs> I was high power, important, in control, independent. And all of a sudden, I was lying on my back. And I just had to take each day by day. Because right. um, some days I was able to do more, like go swimming. Some days I was not able to do much. And so this notion of transformative resilience very much came out of the idea of like, here I am. Um, so what do I do with this? What comes next? Right. Especially because I didn't know what point I would arrive at right. um, with my health after that. Um, and and really the notion of transformative resilience wouldn't have come into being had it not been for this difficult experience, um, had it not been for my mom and I having these conversations. So the term itself is an example of transformative resilience. Huh. Huh. Thinking about what what the resilience meant for you, it's interesting too because your body was telling you you had to change. I have to say, as somebody who's suffered from back pain, your body, you know, your spine, the very core of you is saying this is not sustainable uh, in a way. So the the transformation then, so you use the the crisis of whatever triggers this time of reflection into transformation. And are there are there characteristics, common characteristics for the people that do that? Yeah, so type R's um, have a shared mindset. Huh. Um, mindset, for those who aren't that familiar with it, essentially is the lens through which we see everything. Right. And it's so pervasive that we often don't realize we have it. Um, so you won't yeah. be able to see <laughs> me today, but I'm wearing glasses. And mindset is almost like the rim of the glasses that you don't see that right. you're actually seeing through. Oh, that's a great image. <laughs> so that, Especially because you can see me. Yes, exactly. Uh, so the type R mindset really is the core belief that you can rise to the occasion of challenges and you can find a way to reframe and find the opportunity in it. That's not the same as negating any loss or difficulty. So it's not Pollyanna. Right. Um, so type R's in general share this mindset and that can be um, a mindset can be individual, but we also have collective mindsets right. as groups. And then, you know, based on that, there are some common characteristics and these are things that 
some people will already have a bit of or some groups of people and some of it that we learn and improve. And it's everything from adaptability, right? finding a healthy relationship to control. Uh-huh. And I say that as opposed to being <laughs> in control, especially right. for those type A's out there. Continually learning and iterating, calling on others for support, leveraging support, right. which could be financial support, intellectual, emotional, then things like, I'm trying to remember uh, some of the other characteristics. Another of the most important really is active engagement. Because you can have all the analysis in the world, you can see what's not working. But unless you put that analysis into action and start making change, nothing really happens. I'm fascinated by your needing support, learning to Mm. reach out for Mm. support. Because I do think also, in times of trouble or crisis, we tend to pull into ourselves. And it's hard to ask others for support. And yet, I do think that part of adapting and changing is knowing that you're not on the journey alone. Certainly organizationally realizing that your peers are in the same boat you are, waking up in the middle of the night worrying just like you are and and but are also there so that together you're you're stronger. That seems to me uh, very important and and often hard for people. And I think depending on where you are in life and the role you're in, um one of the really great women that we interviewed for our book talked a lot about this. We kind of embodied her as the characteristic of learning to leverage support um, or the example of it in that she had become executive director of a important um, not-for-profit. And when she took on the role, she didn't realize that there were certain things going on with their finances uh, that, you know, were somewhat masked by someone who was well-intentioned in finance, but that was masking the problem. And so by the time she took on the role, it became very critical at different stages. And this is an extremely diligent female leader. And she tried and she tried, you know, different ways to get them back above the red line. And ultimately, one of the ways that she was able to was to say, you're paying me a lot of money to be here, but you're not really using my expertise, I should step out. Right. But that was a very painful point to get to. And one of the ways that she kind of dealt with all of this was learning to leverage the support of people that could help her. So she had a coach that became very dear to her. Right. She had a brother that was very busy business savvy, um, a very supportive husband and colleagues. And all of that was critical, especially because she was as the leader in a circumstance where she didn't feel she could share certain things. Yes, Um, You know, she had to kind of keep mum about some of it for the sake of the team and motivation. Also, certain things couldn't be shared publicly. And I think that happens particularly in leadership roles where it can be isolating. But as you say, when we're struggling, when we're hurt, when we've had a loss, we do pull into ourselves um, often to rest. Even physically. Or, yeah. Yes. <laughs> rest, recover, right. what have you. And for some of us who are used to being very independent, it can be huge to ask for help. Yes, exactly. When I was uh, injured, I couldn't do much for myself, including grocery shopping. Right. And, oh my gosh. That's a, and, that's you know, I was to used to <laughs> traveling around the world right, by myself, right. let alone just getting across the street right. to the grocery store. And I had one fantastic friend who I like to think of like a ray of sunshine. This woman would come over once or twice a week and bring groceries. And she actually kind of volunteered herself because I wasn't yet at the point where I was asking for ask. help. Yeah, exactly. And then after she started showing up, I started to ask and continue. Right. But, you know, 
know, right. it can be hard. But part of the ways that we discover we have more strength than we realize is to realize the strengths don't have to be our own, right? Yes, that they can yeah. be the strengths of our team, and that team can be a personal cabinet <laughs> yes, <laughs> or yeah. a kitchen cabinet, or it can be your your professional team. But that that is, a, at least for me, that has been transformative in realizing I don't have to have all these skills. I don't mm-hmm. have to have all these these abilities. I can I can assemble them and yeah. complement uh, my own. So I want to go back to, to your your reference to control because I think that's very important. Yes. And then also I want to talk about failure. So you said a relation a healthy relationship to control, which is not the same as being in control. That's that again in a time of great turbulence and fast change. That strikes me as very important. Uh, the control freaks I know <laughs> are in trouble. Indeed, I used to say when I was in the State Department that the 21st century is a terrible time to be a control freak. But what do you mean by a healthy relationship to control? What's interesting is that this is the one characteristic that has most resonated to so many people, huh. yeah, and particularly women. Um, You know, who I think often feel that they have to be responsible for so much, even things that are outside of their area of influence. Exactly. So on one hand, we have to be able to influence the aspects of our lives to feel engaged and like it's worth making an effort. Right. I've also worked in a number of developing countries starting early in my career. And in that context... Dire poverty often means that people have no choices and no ability to control or influence the basics, which we forget about sometimes in the U.S., though there certainly, sadly, are people in those circumstances. So on one hand, you need to have a floor level of being able to influence the aspects of your life. Just Um, basic agency. Yes, exactly. Agency is a great word. On the other hand, we often make ourselves unwell and we spin our wheels by trying to overarch um, and take control of things that we're not going to be able to control, Hmm. Uh, particularly the big picture global challenges or national challenges. So something like climate change, we ultimately do have the ability to influence long term with collective action, but it's not one individual person or one individual organization's ability to control that. And especially especially in a single uh, climate amplified event like Hurricane Sandy or, you know, um, what have you. And so there's this balance that we find that allows us to uh, relieve stress or to free up our energy to pivot and see where we might be more effective if we have some of that basic agency. But we also think about things like um, what we have to let go of. And I came to some of this a couple of years, maybe a few years back, while working with a coach, um, thinking Uh, about my own life. And I don't know why it came to me, but this idea of concentric circles, you know, what can I control? Right. What can I influence? And what's entirely outside of my control? Oh, that's helpful, the circles, yes. And often, um, one of the few things that we can entirely control are our own responses to things, our mindsets and ability to reframe. Um, And again, this can be us as individuals or groups. We can often control how we choose to present ourselves, you know, the message. You can let people know that together I think that we can accomplish this or we can be these kinds of partners. That may influence them, but you're not ultimately going to control their response and whatever else is going on in their life or their work or in the political landscape. 
That's very helpful. Let's talk about this ability to reframe, because I do think that is critical. I'm an inveterate optimist. And I often tell people, look, I've been an international lawyer. I've been a government official. I run a nonprofit. If I weren't an optimist, I couldn't do any of these things because they are all things that you have a great many setbacks. International law doesn't work as many times as it does work. You have to believe in the long game. As a nonprofit leader, there are grants you're going to get, and there are always ones you aren't. And fundraising is very much that way. But optimism and reframing aren't necessarily the same thing. So talk about what it means to be able to reframe uh, in a a resilient way. So reframing in many respects is the foundation of transformative resilience. Hmm. Um, You know, you're creating a transformation. Right, right. And there are so many different ways to reframe. I think on one hand, as I mentioned before, part of being able to reframe is being gentle with ourselves or with others um, and acknowledging a loss first or a disappointment. People or groups of people, organizations will be very resistant to change and reframing (laughs) if they haven't had certain kind of needs or, you know, losses or disappointments acknowledged. So you have to kind of acknowledge and then find the strand of hope, find the opportunity, sometimes almost flip things on its head. Hmm. You know, years ago, I thought I would be an artist when I was a teenager (laughs) and, um, My father is a nature photographer, and I spend a lot of time in nature. And there are just things of like, okay, if I zoom in a little bit, what does the picture look like? Or if if I zoom out and take my lens wider, is there something else that I can see that I couldn't see before when I was very narrowly focused on a particular framing or a particular outcome? In things like figure drawing, they often tell you to learn to draw shapes as opposed to the object that you're looking at. Oh. And so you'll do things like turn um, something upside down right? so that you can see this is made up of two triangles and a circle as opposed to, you know, the fruit that yes. you're looking at. Yes. And in a way, I sometimes think that we need these type of skills. It's, it's a very visual or tangible way that I'm trying to describe reframing, which is how do we change our perspective? Yes. There's always going to be something that is uh, an opportunity or is slightly different than we initially react to it if we're able to, you know, flip it on its head or zoom out or, you know, think maybe horizontally. Right. That's so interesting also because many entrepreneurs describe something similar about figuring out what the product was they had to sell. So right. they start yes. out with this vision of a particular service or a product, and then they test it, and then they discover, well, actually, that bombed, but along the way, they've created a software for communications that yeah. is really great, or they've created a, a service that they didn't realize people would want. So it's that... I love the idea of zooming in or zooming out or or thinking about drawing uh, because those really are reframing how our eye sees something. And the reframing we're talking about for resilience is how our brain sees something, right? It's suddenly seeing a picture differently. And again, in ways, at least in my own life, those two things are connected. It's looking at something, you know, a landscape 
and finding the things you can control in it mm-hmm. <laughs> because th- th- that's that that then gives you energy and confidence as opposed to feeling like you know you're just the victim of these these larger forces exactly uh, interesting let me give you just a quick please, example still please. linked to photography right. um i'm hope that i'm remembering this right but i believe it was fuji film so my father's a photographer right. it's an industry that has changed vastly yeah. in the years that he's been in photography of course. and so um, actual film being used in cameras right. has pretty much been done away with and so certain companies like fuji it's like well that was our business right <laughs> what do we do and i think that in the process of trying to um, figure out what next they realized that something in the chemicals that they use for fixing film you know the image or the light exposure right. onto the film right. actually helped with aging or something. And so they, as I understand it, now make facial products. That's fascinating. I mean, if that isn't a kind of pivot and a finding the next opportunity and reframing and transforming, I don't know what is. Exactly. That is is remarkable. But you can... It's a it's a great example of where some it seems like all is lost finding yes. <laughs> finding yes. a different way through, but so let's talk about failure because one of the things that you talk about and we hear a great deal about in terms of adaptability is how you respond to failure and the value of failure. Indeed, in Silicon Valley, they say fail fast, although I'm also reliably informed that it's easier to say that than to do it. And in your in the book, you all uh, actually say, you know, fail, failing does not feel good. You can, you can reframe it any way you want. Um, but you tell a, a story where Patty Smith was asked to, to perform a, a, at the Nobel Prize ceremony when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize. So Bob Dylan's there and Patti Smith is there and she she's in front of this whole audience uh, and she starts to sing, but she just becomes overcome with nerves, which for me is pretty amazing anyhow to imagine Patti yeah. Smith overcome with nerves. And she couldn't, she couldn't do it. And she repeats a line and then she turns to the audience and says... I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm I'm so nervous. So yeah. you can pick up the story from there and talk about how it connects to dealing with a failure. This is a failure. It's a, it's it sounds like a anxiety dream, right? Yeah. I've had plenty of those. <laughs> right? You get up there and you can't sing, yeah. and yet actually this turns into something positive. Well, first of all, I've become a Patti Smith fan girl since <laughs> this, and I'm actually getting to see her speak in New York. Oh, fabulous! About a year in her life that was particularly difficult. Uh-huh. So I'll be interested to hear her further thoughts about exactly, this. Exactly. But I think um, what was remarkable for me and made me pay more attention to Patti Smith than I had previously was that here was this publicly embarrassing moment. And right. she's a pro. I mean, she's at top Absolutely. of her game. She's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like what have you. Yeah. But she was able to use her vulnerability to really endear people to her. And I think that was part of the transformation and the failure. She also appears to be somebody that's self-reflective, that's able to say, okay, what can I take from this? Right. And as I understand it from an essay that she wrote afterwards, which demonstrates the reflection right. and, and publicly sharing the lessons, which takes bravery. Absolutely. She sat down at a table afterwards with some Nobel scientists and I think felt apologetic 
energetic and, you know, I really wanted to perform at my best. And again, the vulnerability she had shown about her nerves made them say, no, no, we wouldn't have wanted you to do any differently because you've embodied the human condition. Huh. We could relate. Right. And here are these, you know. These are Nobel laureates, They're Nobel right? laureates of all these different <laughs> kinds. And I think that that has meant a lot for me to see somebody be able to publicly stand up. It's a story that I told the first time I gave a public talk about um, my journey to writing this book, which included my father having an accident and an amputation. Wow. And I burst into tears as I was telling this story to this auditorium, which was not what I had expected to do. And yet it was right under there. And somehow having Patti Smith's story with me kind of, you know, tucked under my wing made it feel like, okay, I can do this too. You know, if somebody at this level can do it, then I can too. There's something I want to add about the failure conversation, though, because I think there can be a dark side to it. Mm. And I believe that Michelle Obama pointed to this and said, not everybody gets the chance to fail forward in the same way. Right. You have to think about the existing inequities in that kind of landscape. People get judged differently for their failures. You know, do they get given a second chance? Do they get applauded? Uh, what's seen as a failure or not. And we have to acknowledge that that may be very different for women than men, for people of color. And so, you know, I think there is something very valuable to talk about our ability to use failure. But the two points that I would add to that is that we can't ignore that that is layered, that conversation is layered on top of social norms, gender norms, you know, racial tensions, and that a lot of the fail fast conversation and the examples you hear are the most powerful, most successful white men in the world that are outliers. And the other thing is that we often want to tell this story of failure only when there is a success that follows. Yes, of course. And, and there isn't always. There isn't always. And we can't put ourselves in a position, again, individually as whole organizations or even nations, where we shut down if there isn't a success story to tell as well. Those are two very important points. And and on the first one, of course, you're, you're right about who gets a second chance. And indeed, the sociologist Michelle Gelfand has written about tight cultures and loose cultures Mm -hmm. and tight cultures where there's really very little room for error, for departure from the norm, and loose cultures, which are much more risk-taking. And one of the things she shows is absolutely lower-income people, and certainly lower-income people of color, have very little margin for error. And even, you know, where you think about failure and your parents can bail you out, which is yes. the case for so many affluent kids, failure where you can't, nobody can bail you out can make the difference between basic uh, success in life uh, or not. So I do th- I think that is right and it's interesting that so much of the fail fast has come out of Silicon Valley, which mm-hmm. is hardly representative of the, the population as a whole. So that's a very important caveat. One of the things I think about in terms of making our society more resilient is precisely to provide not a safety net. I mean, a safety net is the idea somebody will catch you when you fall, 
but I think of it as as more of a, a foundation, maybe a, a bouncy one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? but but to provide all Americans with that same security that affluent kids have, that it's okay to try because you will you will get a second chance. And indeed, expanding health insurance so that your kids can stay on your health insurance till you're, they're 26 is a great example of that because otherwise they have to have a job with health insurance and that means they're not taking the kinds of risks that they otherwise might be able to take that would would advance them. So I, that that's a very important point. Just to add on to that, one of the ways in which I was able to start my own consulting business maybe eight years ago in the UK was because there was the National Health Service. Ah, so when yes. I graduated um, with a master's from Columbia University, I got out and for a time walked around the streets of New York without health insurance. Right. Um, you know, then living in the UK, I originally was employed before becoming independent. And I could take that risk exactly. because the National Health Service was there and I could get care without having to earn a lot of money initially. Um, so... I say that again and again to people because of its importance in my journey, because I think there's importance at a policy level, but also there is such a strong narrative around entrepreneurship. Yes. And um, particularly now, there's a whole generation that's being told that's the way to work. Yes. And I don't remember the exact statistics, but it's something shocking, like 45% of us will be self-employed right. by, you know, 2040 yes. or something. And yet, I don't think that the conversations about entrepreneurship are realistic or honest about the playing field, about power dynamics between independents and, you know, high-profile individuals that may take an interest in your area of work or um, companies that may take an interest in your area of work. There certainly are the people that will be able to break through and compete. And But I think um, we really have to, if we're compelling a whole generation of young people towards entrepreneurship, that we have to think about things like safety nets, think about things like well-being and the toll that it can take to live the startup life and yes. take certain kinds of risks, particularly if you're in a place that doesn't have certain kinds of safety nets. Yes. Um, and that <laughs> means having a more realistic and honest conversation about power dynamics, uh, you know, economic power exactly. dynamics, celebrity Celebrity versus non-celebrity. Um, I mean, just to start with the idea that women get only 6% of yes. all venture capital. And those women, if you look at women of color, yes. and probably men of color, it, the numbers are even smaller. So when you think about even among the men who do get the venture capital, there are many more stories of failure. To go back to your point, that yeah. not all resilience stories end up with the, the, the falling down and then succeeding. And the power dynamics are very much there. Uh, I, I also, again, I think about building foundations that are much more universal because I do think people will be more responsible for their own trajectory through life, but that that is very stressful, even for people who are entrepreneurial. I'm entrepreneurial, yes, and it's yes. stressful for there are many people whose personalities are really much more they're happier with order and control, yeah, as yeah. you said, so that this is only a path forward if we put lots of kind of aids in place, say, nets yes. and, and foundations. I, I do think that's 
that's very important. If it comes hand in hand with, I think, a more honest, robust conversation and with social innovation. But also, I couldn't, after these past couple of years, couldn't argue more strongly that we still need finance to be more transformative, even among the pool of women, for instance, that are getting certain kinds of funding. A lot of it still tends to reinforce gender norms of like the women who are making purses and couture and what have you, um, (laughs) as some who has global and social interests and kind of purpose-driven interests, I want to see women get encouraged in those directions more, as well as men. But, you know, finance is often in a entrepreneurial context, a catalyst for does something take off or not. Exactly. And And also critical to that sense of agency. So if we go back to the idea of you've had a real setback, you need to take stock, you need to reframe, you need to reach out to other people, you need to engage. One of the things that will let you do that is the belief that you'll get some of that energy, some of that uh, fuel, which, yes, money is still pretty essential. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about organizational resilience, because in many ways, one of the things, again, Type R makes clear is that they're the same characteristics for individuals, for organizations, even for a country. And the United States at all countries need to become far more resilient in the face of dramatically changing uh, climate, but also, again, a world of technology we only barely understand. There's a professor at, at a business professor at Vanderbilt University named Tim Vogus, who has, he's researched very high pressure, but high performing organizations. So like hospitals and fire stations where performance really is a matter of life and death. And he finds that the key to resilience uh, and and growth is not a kind of technocratic response. It's not a whole set of rules uh, and procedures, but an organization's culture. So talk a little bit about culture, organizational culture and and resilience. I'm glad you brought up Tim because his work is fantastic. And in many ways, it's counterintuitive Uh in very important ways. Um, Because with these organizations that are high pressure yet high reliability, you think it's got to be the technical skills that keep them together. You know, those nuclear power plants, those uh, fire stations. Right. And what's so interesting about the research that he's done, um, for which I believe he's just recently won an award. Oh, great. But that what he has found is that it's about shared mindset huh. and the shared belief that the group or the organization will make it through. Right. So it's a great example of collective mindset, you know, moving from just your own individual mindset. But what they're doing in this belief is essentially sharing a mindset that says, we will find a way to make it through. And then that belief leads to very different behaviors, um, particularly around things like communication. So in hospitals, um, there have been some examples of some very large, very costly costly failures and costly in terms of people's health, uh, life, what have you. And some of it they've discovered has come down to things like the pass off of information from one person in the chain to the other, not properly taking place. But in the organizations that Tim's looking at that are succeeding, that belief that together they will make it through is creating a different kind of communication and tighter bonds and connections, which then leads to a tighter handoff of information, making sure that things don't 
drop through the cracks, but it also creates a sense of success or, you know, ensured success or confidence that then allows people to let go of unnecessary control a bit and hierarchy. So it allows information to flow to different parts of the organization. And this has come up in the military as well with kind of chains of command. Do you keep the decision making um, from afar at the highest levels? Or do you start to let people that are there on the ground that have certain very local level experience and have their eyes on the changing situation? Do you let them make decisions that you channel back up to the, the highest levels? And so that's some of what takes place is this shift in information being shared as needed, um, decision making shifting as needed when you have this core shared belief or shared type R mindset. Um, Not that that's what Tim calls it, but it is essentially the embodiment of the type R mindset in an organization. That's so interesting because Stan McChrystal, General Stan McChrystal in his book, Team of Teams, talks about having to build networks of special forces soldiers who could respond to the constantly changing tactics of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And he says, in the end, it it's a combination of shared consciousness. So everybody's got to communicate. And he has a call with thousands of people every single day yeah. where people find out at least enough to know whom they have to follow up with, but then quite independent execution so that you don't have to check back because you can't. It's got to be very fast. But that can only work when people feel like they're part of one organization, one one organism, really, and, and are communicating communicating in all sorts of ways. That, that's that's interesting and I think reassuring from the organizational level and, and again, very similar to the individual level, as we said, when you feel like you're not alone, that you can ask for help, that you are part of something that has together, collectively, a set of strengths that you yourself might not have. You feel better as an individual, but the organization uh, also then communicates that through. Um, so we've got time for one more question, and I have to ask you about the connection between resilience and and the larger public good. And we've actually just been touching on the value of feeling like you're part of something else. Uh, but there, there's been research at, at the University of Virginia and the University of Washington business schools that look at companies that survive uh, in the midst of a crisis and those that don't. And so they surveyed 140 businesses across a whole range of industries. And they found something that I found to be certainly not intuitive, which was that those businesses that engaged with their wider community in things like doing charity work or, or, or you know, common uh, engagement for people who had had less in various ways, that that was one of the things that marked those companies that survive. So what that's, that's not the company responding in its business. That's the company responding in the service of the greater good. How is that part of resilience? I'm so glad you brought up that research. It's one of my favorite pieces of, you know, what we've written about, but also the foundations of resilience for individuals and businesses. And I just want to point out that there's a whole body of research for individuals that show much better physical health for people that um, report having a strong sense of individual purpose. But then again, as you say, there's this research um, among other studies that show that organizations through the financial crisis that engage 
engaged more broadly and in this genuine way where it right. wasn't seen as it's going to be a tit for tat, right. um, that they did make it through much more successfully, including several years after the financial crisis. You know, purpose is coming up more and more strongly. And there was just an announcement by the business roundtable about moving away from this notion that businesses core purpose is to return value to their right. shareholders. Right. And they've kind of done an about face very recently, which will then have to see how it plays out because, you know, it always comes down to the details right. to taking action to implementation. But so many of our systems are breaking down, um, whether it's climate, whether it's, you know, the social fabric. Right. And I don't want to sound like a pessimist because ultimately I am hopeful, but we need to be able to reframe these challenges and in doing so, come up with innovative solutions that help, one, recreate social fabric so that we all feel a sense of buy-in yes. in addressing these. Because so much of what's happening in America, it seems, is that we're not living in the same shared realities. Right. So how right. can you have a conversation at the same table about, you know, finding solutions if you don't even feel like you both own the problem or live within the same spectrum of that problem? But there's a great example, and it's a somewhat old one, but I think foundational about organizational purpose, which is Alcoa um, hmm. and Jim O'Neill. And uh, I think Alcoa is steel, if I remember correctly. And but aluminum. Aluminum. <laughs> sorry. That's right. <laughs> I've been living aluminum abroad. Company of America, I think yes. is what it's Sorry. For. I've been right. living abroad for a while. <laughs> and I haven't bought aluminum for a while. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but when he was brought in as the CEO, uh, the opportunity presented itself because there had been a high-profile death. And so he came into the company and the board and everybody expected him to kind of, you know, do the normal and talk about how they were going to keep plugging ahead with certain kinds of financial returns. And he came in with a whole different approach, which was we have to be values driven and purpose driven. <sighs> and that that will lead to good business structuring. Right. And it was scandalous, as I understand it. And so he started setting all of these safety standards as kind of the keystones of what things were measured against right. and how that would structure business. A year in, I believe there was a death on his watch this right. time. And right. that's really difficult. Yeah. And it made him redouble his efforts huh. and further find mechanisms for communicating his purpose to get buy-in so right. that it was everybody's purpose. But also it created different structures of calls all over the world, checking in once a day. Right. And he set these really stringent standards that were like, we will have no deaths this year. And it worked. Um, Ten years later, when he left, it was five times safer to work at Alcoa. And I think their profits had grown from $3 billion to $27 billion wow. in a 10-year period. Wow. So, because of purpose and meaning and, yes. and a sense that you're not just in it for the money. And he was very conscious in saying that economics is always put first in the way that we think about business. Right. And I don't think that's right. And he was doing that at a time when there wasn't as much discussion about it. And it was kind of scandalous in the business community. So in a way, we can see steps being taken towards greater purpose in this new business roundtable announcement, but we'll then need to see lived purpose. Right, um, right which is always the challenge. <laughs> well, that's a great note on which to end, because when you think about why we're having this conversation about resilience, because we are living in such a 
turbulent time, and we feel the turbulence, at least. Certainly, I'm aware of this constant change, but also unpredictable and bad (laughs) things coming at us to think that part of what will make us more resilient. You can't see what the future is, but you can control how you're going to respond to things you can't predict, and then to think about uh, what those characteristics are that will make you more adaptable, that will get you to a place you ca- you can't see. Uh, you know, the, the again, the reaching out to others and engaging, but also connecting to something bigger than yourselves, whether that is uh, your team uh, or your community, your nation, or a larger purpose in the world. That for me, uh, is itself at least some protection against the bumps uh, that we face. So, Amma Marston, I thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews. 